Hey, welcome to the Labor Heritage Power Hour, a weekly radio show celebrating the cultural heritage of the American worker. We're a proud founding member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, laborradionetwork.org. I'm Chris Garlock. Elise Bryant is away this week. On today's show, some may say that civil rights is the number one issue. But no one gains from a fair employment practice bill if there is no employment to be had. No one gains by being admitted to a lunch counter if he has no money to spend. They put that onto the walls. And, and, and they did it in the spirit of Diego Rivera, um, where it's real people doing real things. It's not some kind of high polluting art. You, you don't have to guess at what's going on. He's depicting uh, labor here in Pittsburgh, literally on the walls. Um, labor uh, workers being sacrificed to industry. Um, I, one of the murals is mothers giving uh, their sons to American industry, and it depicts a, uh, a dead miner. JFK's last words to labor was saving the UE Chicago mural, discovering Maxo Vanka, the Diego Rivera of Pittsburgh, plus UE President Carl Rosen's favorite labor song and on Labor History in two. The year was 1919. That day began the week-long general strike in Seattle, Washington. That's all coming up on the Labor Heritage Power Hour here on WPFW 89.3 FM, Revolutionary Radio for Revolutionary Times. Hey, just a quick reminder, the Power Hour crew works for free, but it takes cold, hard cash to keep the lights on at the station and the radio tower humming. So please, Take a second right now to partner with us in this critical work of liberation. Donate during our winter pledge drive at WPFWFM.org or call 800-222-9739 and ensure that WPFW will be here to chronicle the revolution. Here's the show. On November 15, 1963, the President of the United States came to New York City to address the Fifth Constitutional Convention of the AFL-CIO. It is difficult even now to realize that one week later, almost to the hour, John F. Kennedy would be shot dead by an assassin on the streets of Dallas, Texas, in the most terrible crime of our generation. No one in the convention dreamed that John F. Kennedy was speaking his last words to labor. That's AFL-CIO President George Meany in a newly digitized film that's now available online at Advancing Workers' Rights in the American South, Digitizing the Records of the AFL-CIO Civil Rights Division, a collaboration between Georgia State University and the University of Maryland. To find out more, I talked with labor archivist Ben Blake and Alan Weirdak at the University of Maryland College Park. Okay, guys, welcome back. It's uh, wonderful to have you uh, relaunching our cool things from the George Meany Labor Archives. You've got a couple of special things for us today, but there's kind of a framing that we're going to have for at least the next um, month or so because of a special event we have coming up. Alan, do you maybe want to set that framing for us? Yeah, so we've got this uh, upcoming online symposium 
p.m. on April 4th. That'll be hosted between the University of Maryland and Georgia State University. And the name of the symposium is Fighting for Freedom. The symposium is based on a recent digitization of a large portion of the AFL-CIO Civil Rights Department records between the University of Maryland and Georgia State. Cool. Ben, you have a speech by somebody rather interesting. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? As part of the project on the uh, digitizing the Civil Rights Department records, which the symposium uh, will be based on, um, is a set of films we digitized. And one of the films is Kennedy's last speech to labor at the 1963 convention of the AFL-CIO. And in that speech, this is 1963, it's actually just a couple of weeks before Kennedy was assassinated. It's in New York City. And I know that he talks about a bunch of different things. But one of the things, obviously, on people's mind was civil rights, which ties back in with the symposium. Kennedy mentions civil rights in two parts of the speech. He talks about actions that the Kennedy administration took towards desegregation. And here in the United States, we've encouraged the peaceful desegregation of schools in 238 districts, theaters in 144 cities, restaurants in 129 cities, and lunch counters in 100 cities, while at the same time taking executive action to open doors to our citizens in transportation terminals and polling places and public and private employment. And later he talks about and urges this AFL-CIO to support passage of the Fair Employment Practices Act, which is against employment discrimination. There are those who support our efforts for jobs, but say it isn't the number one issue. Some may say that civil rights is the number one issue. This nation needs the passage of our bill if we are to fulfill our constitutional obligations. But no one gains from a fair employment practice bill, if there is no employment to be had, no one gains by being admitted to a lunch counter if he has no money to spend. No one gains from attending a better school if he doesn't have a job after graduation. No one thinks much of the right to own a good home and to sleep in a good hotel or go to the theater if he has no work and no money. Civil rights legislation is important, but to make that legislation effective, we need jobs in the United States. 1963, of course, is a huge upsurge in the civil rights movement. The Birmingham campaign in 1963 and then the March on Washington in August, just a few weeks uh, later, Kennedy gave his speech. And I think it, in terms of the labor movement, this period, 1963, the movement was really beginning to gain momentum in support of the civil rights movement. And it was kind of the beginning of a turning point. The AFL-CIO Executive Council hadn't officially endorsed the 1963 march, but of course, individual unions and local unions supported it. And there were over 40,000 unionists attended the march in August of 1963, the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. Uh, so it's, it, that kind of set uh, this growing civil rights movement with some growing support from labor kind of set the tone. And I think that's why Kennedy mentioned civil rights twice in his speech. 
And the speech is available online. Alan, you pulled some really interesting uh, related materials I'd love for you to share uh, with folks. So I looked through what is called the ProQuest Historical Newspapers Database, which connects to most large newspapers um, over the last 100, 200 years. One of the first articles I found was from the November 15th, 1963 Chicago Tribune, which is a day before JFK's speech. And so the day before was actually when um, AFL-CIO President George Meany kicked the convention off. And so he was talking about automation. And I found a really interesting quote where Meany refers to automation as, quote, a real curse that could result in a, quote, national catastrophe. I was thinking about automation because I think we're always looking for links to current struggles. So I think a lot about the Writers Guild. I think a lot about SAG-AFTRA and how automation has been an issue within the labor movement for about 60 years. And another quote that I found really interesting is, so Meany goes on to say, quote, every big corporation is in a mad race to produce more and more with less and less labor without any feeling as to what it may mean to the whole national economy. And that labor's job is to, quote, wake up the nation, take every possible step to improve the vital purchasing power that means jobs. So he's pushing this program. And labor's program in 1963 looks at tax relief in the lower brackets, basically public works investments, a higher minimum wage, and a shorter work week of no more than 35 hours. And I think that this is something that labor has been pushing for off and on for 60 years. I think it's really interesting to go back to the 63 convention and to hear all of these messages. And then on another note with a bit more humor, in the November 16th, 1963 edition of the Washington Post, there's an article titled President Meets No Mad Hatters. And this is <laughs> when President Kennedy, he basically, he carried a hat to the AFL-CIO convention, but he didn't wear it. And he told AFL-CIO officials to pass the word to Hatter's union president, Alex Rose, about his gesture towards the hat makers, saying, quote, will you tell Alex that I arrived with a hat? Mr. Kennedy asked David Dubinsky, president of the International Ladies Garment Workers Union, so the chief executive, he allowed a, a Secret Service agent to hold his hat and did not wear it um, either going into or leaving the convention. So I thought that was a little humorous note about JFK's appearance at the 63 convention. It's actually a fascinating piece of, of labor history. I, I think a lot of people... Uh, will know that for many years, everybody wore hats, all men wore hats. And Kennedy is famously blamed or credited, I guess, depending on your perspective, for essentially killing the hat because he didn't wear a hat. The fact that he was smart enough to show up to an AFL-CIO convention at least carrying a hat and making sure that the head of the Hatters Union knew that he had a hat is a really wonderful piece of labor history and what we what we come to you in the labor archives for. So thanks for that, it, guys. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, just a strange, interesting gesture of solidarity where it's like, oh, I have the hat. <laughs> May not have worn it, but I got it. Exactly. I didn't forget about it. Exactly. All right. Where can folks uh, find this wonderful new collection? So you can find this collection. We will have a link in the show notes, but if you just do a search on Google for UMD, representing the University of Maryland and advancing workers' rights, that will bring you to our portion of the digitized material. And then from there, if you scroll down, you will see the AV materials and then click on those and JFK's last speech to labor will be one of those links. Another easier way to find it is just on YouTube because that's where it's hosted. So just go onto YouTube, put in quotations, JFK's last speech to labor, 
you will find the video. Excellent. Thanks, guys, and we'll see you next week. Thank you, Chris. Thanks, Chris. We can provide equality of opportunity for our people only in the final analysis if we provide for a growing and buoyant and progressive economy here in the United States. And that is what we're attempting to do. And I come here today and express my appreciation to the AFL-CIO, which in the 1960s is attempting to do what its fathers did in the 1930s in supporting a program of progress for this country of ours. So we ask your help, not next year, now. Marshal Liotte, the great French marshal, went out to his gardener and asked him to plant a tree. And the gardener said, uh, why plant it? It won't flower for 100 years. In that case, the marshal said, plant it this afternoon. That's what we have to do. <laughs> John F. Kennedy's last words to labor on the Labor Heritage Power Hour right here on WPFW 89.3 FM. Our Winter Pledge Drive theme is Revolutionary Radio for Revolutionary Times. And my old boss, Jim Hightower, used to say, the people are revolting in the good way. What he meant was we're fighting back, and what that means right now is take a sec to partner with us in this critical work of liberation. Donate during our winter pledge drive, pfw.org, or call 1-800-222-9739, and make sure that WPFW will be here to chronicle the revolution. Here's Anita Mathias with the story behind the song. Doesn't seem that strange boss My name is Anita Mathias. Uh, I am a network engagement organizer at Jobs with Justice, and I'm a proud Washington Baltimore News Guild member, uh, a former Chicago Teachers Union member, and I'm super happy to be joining y'all here for the story behind the song. Their bosses refuse to give health care. And the story behind this song, well, is really that I was a first time Labor Notes attendee, a very green organizer. Uh, and, you know, I saw that I could win <laughs> a small amount of prize money to for writing a song. And I thought, oh, I have a lot of labor experiences fresh in my mind from the Chicago Teachers Union strike. Like, let me let me put this to a song that I like. Um, so Boss, Put That PTO On is a parody of Put Your Records On by Corinne Bailey Ray.
and um, really the intent behind the song is that in the time of COVID, so many people, including myself, had the same number of sick days and time off that they had any other time. And so for teachers in Chicago, we would get eight sick days total in the year. And yeah, and, and with with COVID, you know, eight days isn't even the full quarantine. Uh, and there was no accommodation for the fact that most, if not all of us, would probably get COVID because of our jobs. And, you know, through organizing and through the labor movement, I could also learn that that, that was not unique to teachers, right? Like most professions, in fact, most professions dominated by women, you know, nursing, um, a lot of health professions, um, like service staff, um, a lot of our essential workers were receiving little to no sick time or like extra vacation time in, in a time when, you know, an illness that was going around could, could, you know, threaten your life, but at the very least make you have to stay home for 14 days. Um, so yeah, this the song kind of talks about uh, <laughs> the need for for more paid time off, and then uh, this the second part of it is, and please just add a raise. I need a job that pays my rent and gas uh, and vacation because, uh, you know, also <laughs> teachers, a lot of our service staff, essential workers, and even organizers, a lot of the time, are barely making enough to cover our rent. Um, and again, in the time of COVID, there's so many emergency expenses, things you didn't know you'd have to be dealing with and, and, uh, you know, oh, and, and really high inflation. And, and so our, you know, we need to, to keep organizing and to keep asking for more in order for our wages to even partially keep up with, with the rate of inflation right now. Um, so yeah, that's the story behind that song. I, I sang it at the at the Great Labor Arts Exchange in Chicago, and little did I know that Elise and so many others are based here in D.C., where I live. Um, and the rest is is history. I, I connected with the D.C. Labor Chorus. Um, I attended the Great Labor Arts Exchange in in Maryland the next year, um, and it's really just been a beautiful journey of connecting my love of, of music and song with with labor um, and community which is which is really why I sing in the first place is to is to sing with other people and yeah and be united and and maybe I should share that you know recently we did a jobs of justice training where there's a game we have to try and uh, really multitask like pass a bunch of different objects say the objects do it all at the same time and the only way you can really do it is by kind of singing it together like using the rhythm and the motions to, to be on the same page and, and i was it reminded me of, of that lesson that music and song can unite people and spread a message in in ways that words or instructions sometimes can't um and i that's the experience I have of of singing with the labor chorus and and learning from from Elise is is yeah that I feel feel drawn in in my, in my heart and 
you know, connected to all these people who I don't know, but have, have come to know. Fifty years ago, a team of artists led by John Pittman Weber and Jose Guerrero created the Solidarity Mural in the lobby of the UE Hall in Chicago, at that time the center of a vibrant working-class neighborhood. UE is short for the United Electrical Radio and Machine Workers of America. 
The mural tells the story of UE, industrial unionism, and related social movements in the style of Diego Rivera. For 50 years, it served as a visual narrative of the struggles and triumphs of the working class, capturing the spirit of solidarity, resilience, and the fight for workers' rights. With the neighborhood gentrifying, UE has sold the aging building, but is working hard to preserve the mural for the Chicago community and for future generations. Guest producer Gene Bruskin sat down to talk with UE President Carl Rosen about the mural, and he started out by asking Rosen about the union that's hosted the artwork for half a century. So UE was one of the original CIO unions. We were part of the founding of the CIO in the 1930s. We represented all of the workers in the electrical parts industry, also radio and the machine tool industry. And uh, we were the third largest union, actually, at the end of World War II with over 600,000 members. Then we had the McCarthy era intent to defend the labor movement and was largely successful at doing that. Nine unions were totally destroyed and two survived the attacks with kind of the original CIO principles intact. It was UE and the West Coast Longshore, the ILWU. We lost about 80% of our members ended up about 120,000 members at, at the end of that period. We maintained a lot of p policies and activities that faded away from a lot of other CIO unions. We maintained a very strong bottom-up rank democracy, independence on foreign policy, willingness to criticize the government, standing up very strongly in, in all of the various rights movements all the way through 60s, 70s, 80s, and beyond, whether it was immigrant rights, mm -hmm. women's rights, uh, people of color. And more currently, obviously, LGBTQ, et cetera, we've, we've always been out there out front on that. And that had something to do with why this mural got painted at UE Hall. We are strong believers in rank and file democracy within the union and, and local autonomy and people being able to speak out on the issues the way that they think are appropriate, all of the, and then most importantly, that we are very supportive of workers organizing themselves uh, without fear. That means it's a problem for those up above because the people down below now know their own power. It's a result of a situation where as this new generation has started to organize, they've been flocking to UE and particularly amongst graduate workers, especially, and it's spread across. We're in a range of 10 campuses now and about 30,000 workers who have organized into UE in the, in the last couple of years, a chunk of them under contract. Whole bunch of others are uh, fighting for first contracts. Don't be surprised if you might see strikes on a couple campuses this this spring uh, to get their uh, first contracts. And uh, it's been very exciting for our union is really rebuilding our our numbers uh, in a great way. And these are folks who want to uh, fight the fight on behalf of the labor movement. It's really back to the CIO roots in a lot of ways. So that's a great segue because there is something uh, on the wall of the uh, historic UE building in Chicago that goes back to the CIO roots. I've uh, been at that building a couple of times. And when I was there, someone took the time to actually give us a tour of the mural. Because when you start sort of walking up the stairs, you thought maybe Diego Rivera was there someday and painted this remarkable uh, thing on the stairs, a work of art. Why don't you tell us about just briefly what the situation is with the mural now, but, and then more importantly, uh, how it got there and what it represents. 
Right. The immediate situation for the mural is it's under threat because we got to a situation where we needed to sell the building, get gentrified. There's no parking. It's very difficult for our members to use the Union Hall at this point. It's an old building. It's 120 years old at this point, and it would need a ton of money to keep it going. And of course, the property taxes shoot up when an area gentrifies, et cetera. So it just didn't make sense for us to stay there. And frankly, the cash that we can get for it now is very helpful as we're doing all of this organizing. So we made a decision to go ahead and put it on the market. It's taken a little while, but it's now been sold and we're going to be out of there in the next several weeks, essentially less than 10 weeks now. And we are working hard to try to get the mural relocated, which is a major piece of work because it's painted on plaster walls. So literally the walls have to be removed and the plaster removed from the back of the mural and then get it glued onto a new surface. It can be done. It is not cheap. It's not money that we're going to be able to supply from within our union or probably from within the labor movement itself. But there are arts funders who will uh, intervene in situations like that. And we're hopeful that uh, one or more of them will step up and make it happen. So we've got plans laid out on that. We've got an art conservation shop ready to uh, go to work, swoop in and, and, and get it done if, if the funding is there. We're also documenting it very well. We're getting very good photos taken of it, which could theoretically be you know blown up and, and printed on large surfaces, which could then be hung on walls, recreating the mural. And we've uh, just had uh, a LIDAR scan of it done, uh, which will allow you to interact on a computer screen and kind of walk up the staircase. Uh, it's a uh, setup, and we're looking forward to bringing that public at some point, uh, maybe in addition with people being able to see it on the walls. And we have a location to put it on the walls, the Chicago Teachers Union, which has a, a large uh, building that they remodeled just a few years ago is willing to display the mural if we can get it there. So that's what we're working on doing right now. Carl, it's a sort of a unique mural because of the way it crawls up the stairs. I wonder if you could uh, walk us through it a little bit, what's on it and how it works as a mural and then also how it got there. Okay. It was painted in 73 and 1974, the lead muralist for John Weber and Jose Guerrero. Uh, John was already involved in the mural movement, which was reborn. There was a big mural movement sparked by Diego Rivera in the 1930s and then encouraged along by the employment in the WPA of a lot of artists to paint murals. And then that all got suppressed along with almost all kind of independent thought during the McCarthy era in the 50s and, and it went away. And there was an upsurge of organizing and activity and Vietnam War protest movement, the women's rights movement, the African-American black rights movement in the, in the 60s, all of these things, the civil rights movements, it, uh, all of them came together and created a lot of foment in the country. And out of that was born again a mural movement. And it started with something called the Wall of Respect in Chicago in 1967 or 68. William Walker did it. And it was just portraits of African-American leaders on a wall of a old building on the south side. And, and all of a sudden, people started painting murals all over the city. And John Weber was on the ground floor with William Walker. They actually founded what is now the Chicago Public Art Group, uh, which preserves and, and encourages this art around the city. And what, what happened is they were doing all these outdoor murals, um, but a couple of them had enough politics to realize to really change things, you had to involve the worker organizations in the form of labor unions. Uh, but the Problem was, uh, in the early 1970s, most of the labor movement was not in a good place. It was not in the same place as all of these activists were. 
and all of these other movements. <laughs> and they went around door to door to several unions and none of them wanted to cooperate. Um, and they got to UE and UE said, we'd be happy to do something with you. We don't have any money because uh, the rest of the labor movement in corporate America and the government conspired to take away most of our members. But we've got some walls here you can use. And I think, we, you know, we paid for the paint and they donated their labor, basically. And they sat down with our leaders and staff at the time and talked about UE and talked about what made UE tick and all the way back to its CIO roots. And then they put that onto the walls and, and, and they did it in the spirit of Diego Rivera. Um, where it's real people doing real things. It's not some kind of highfalutin art. You, you don't have to guess at what's going on. There's people there <laughs> handing out leaflets in front of factories. There's people working in a, a steel forge. There's people carrying picket signs a, as part of a strike and the people's movements. There's a dove of peace because this was the time of the Vietnam War. There's a, a great graphic of one whole wall, the top part of it, is is all the evil forces in in the world at, at that time or a representation of them the military industrial complex fascist dictators from latin america southern sheriffs the kkk and they're the literally oppressing workers who are below them under a floor basically but the workers are also fighting back and punching through that floor and saying we aren't going to take it so it's literal and representational. It's, it's, it's great. And then there's a section with a couple sections that have actual leaders of UE from that time demanding that, that the boss sign a contract or leading a march. So it's got that UE history, but it's got the history is also really the CIO history. I mean, the first thing you see when you come in is four hands of different races all clasping together, which was really the, the heart of the CIO, right? That you were going to organize everybody in the industry. It didn't matter what their race was, what their gender was, what their what their occupation was, their skill level was. You had to organize everybody together if you wanted to have power that was going to be able to match the power of the big capitalists. That's the first thing you see. And so when I take people on tours through it, that's where I always start so that people can understand the beating heart of the CIO. And then towards the end, as you get up on the second floor, the UE preamble is up there. And it's got our non-discrimination clause, uh, non-discrimination statement within that preamble that is radical, it was absolutely radical at that time, that you weren't going to discriminate based on sex, uh, based on race, based on religion, based on craft, or based on political beliefs, which is part of what got us through the McCarthy era, because we refused to do a purge, we refused to knuckle under. And, uh, and it also talks about pursuing at all times a mili uh, militant struggle on behalf of the members, and that takes us to stories like the Republican win Republic Windows and Doors plant occupation in 2008, which nobody had pulled off in decades and was very successful at getting the workers what they needed and trying to inspire others. Are these kind of labor murals around other places? Have you seen them? The UE have any others? Or are there in any other uh, union buildings that you've seen? We have a mural at our uh, building, at our big local. Uh, Local 506 in Erie, Pennsylvania, the big OG locomotive plant that's now Wabtech that had a, a huge important strike this past summer. That mural was as part of our cross-border solid work with the FAT, the uh, independent left union in Mexico, that we forged a strategic organizing alliance with. It was really at the time that NAFTA was getting passed in the early 90s. And, and in the course of that, we also have a mural on the outside of this building that because it's outdoors, it hasn't weathered. Uh, quite as well. But, and that one will probably be lost in the course of the building being redeveloped. 
but the one inside in Erie is a great, a great mural and it highlights especially the role of women in the union, which is nice. And we, we did these murals in collaboration with the font in Mexico. And, and so Mike Alowitz, who did the one, he's a U.S. labor muralist and probably has the biggest body of murals around the country for labor, but how many of them are still surviving? I don't know. I know there was a great one at the Teamster City, but that building had to get torn down. So that mural is lost in Chicago. But we had him go down to Mexico City and do one at the headquarters of the FOT down there. there there's not that many. There's very few um, indoor murals in Chicago, period. This is certainly the oldest one that's surviving in Chicago. And so we really are trying hard to preserve it. If anybody's interested in supporting the efforts to preserve it, go to the UE website, ueunion.org. So just ueunion.org. And there's a story, uh, which right now is uh, one of our lead stories under the UE News section, left-hand column, about efforts to, to save the mural. And it will take you to a place where, A, you can sign an online petition supporting it, which is important. The funders know there's popular support for this being done. And there's a link within that to a story from a couple of years ago, a few years ago, actually now, from the Chicago Sun-Times that has uh, some uh, beautiful photos of the mural in it. I think when we have something like this that's so powerful and linked to one of the most successful and crucial parts of our own history, everybody's history, not just union history, if you're making, if you got health care at all, or you're making anywhere near a decent wage, uh, it's because of what happened in that in uh, earlier in the 20th century where UE was one of the leaders. And so we all know a great debt of gratitude. And we all own this mural in our own way. It's our history. It's not just their U.S. history. And I'm glad that everybody got a chance to hear about it. From 1994 until uh, 2019, if I was in Chicago, I was in that building every day. And to be able to w go into work and as you walk up the stairs, to be surrounded that, by that, it was just majestic. It was for somebody who's religious, it'd be like going to church, right? And And then even now, I, that I'm working for the National Union. I'm, I'm all over the country, but if I'm in Chicago, I get there at least once a week to check in on things. So it's going to leave a hole. Thanks uh, for having me on uh, with you. And I look forward to being able to hopefully give a positive report at some point that uh, we've been able to save at least some big chunks of this mural. UE President Carl Rosen. You're listening to the Labor Heritage Power Hour on WPFW 89.3 FM revolutionary radio for revolutionary times. Hey, take a sec right now to partner with us in this critical work of liberation. Donate during our winter pledge drive, WPFWFM.org, or call 1-800-222-9739 and ensure that WPFW will be here to chronicle the revolution. Next up, the latest in our favorite labor song series. Pearl Rosen, uh, General President of the United Electrical Radio and Machine Workers of America, UE. Uh, I, I mean, I, I go to the standards. I can't beat Solidarity Forever. If I was just going to do one song over and over again, <laughs> it would be Solidarity Forever. So. 
more often than not, I end my speech not by saying thank you or some other rousing thing that I could say. I just say solidarity, bold and strong, at the end. I helped get Chicago Jobs with Justice started, the Jobs with Justice chapter here, because it's all about showing solidarity for each other and, and finding ways to be there for each other. Um, if we don't have that, as a working class, we have nothing. We're coming up on the final segment in today's Labor Heritage Power Hour. It's about a historic mural that's being restored in Pittsburgh. It's almost 100 years old, and you can help make sure that WPFW, which has been bringing you revolutionary radio for 47 years, can continue to do so for the next generation. Please donate now during our winter pledge drive, WPFWFM.org or call 800-222-9739 and ensure that WPFW will be here to chronicle the revolution. He's depicting uh, labor here in Pittsburgh, literally on the walls. Um, Labor uh, workers being sacrificed to industry. Um, One of the murals is mothers giving uh, their sons to American industry, and it depicts a, uh, a dead miner. The talking heads David Byrne called him the Diego Rivera of Pittsburgh. When Croatian painter and immigrant Maxo Vanka first visited Pittsburgh in 1935, he fell in love with the steel town and developed a friendship with Father Albert Zagar of the St. Nicholas Croatian Church in Millville. Zagar longed for color on his church's plain walls, but he didn't want the usual imagery found in most religious houses. He knew Vanka was the perfect artist for the job. Vanka painted 25 murals that cover every inch of the church. And today, artists and activists, including members of the United Steelworkers, are working to restore the historic art to its original glory. On today's show, the Steelworkers Solidarity Works podcast talks with two of their union's members who are dedicating their time and expertise to saving these murals and about what they mean for Pittsburgh and the labor movement as a whole. Welcome to Solidarity Works a podcast from the United Steelworkers Union. I'm Chelsea Engel, proud member of the United Steelworkers. Angelica Marks is a member of USW Local 9562 and works as an art handler at the Carnegie Museum of Art. Angelica eventually got an opportunity to learn framing which then led her to networking with art conservators, including one who was working on a project 
to restore the murals at St. Nicholas Croatian Church. These murals are incredibly unique, just in general compared to other murals that you might find in churches, um, but especially for its time period, because during that time, there was a lot of federal programming happening to fund muralists across the country to do paintings in government buildings and schools to promote American values and sort of like the valor of war and all these positive sides of American culture. And Bonka came in and it's this private exchange between him and Father Zagar. And they decided what imagery they wanted to do. And it was actually this really visceral social critique of American culture at the time. And adding in the experience of the Croatian diasporic working class community, which you're just not going to find anywhere else. I mean, they're just, they're just really special. Angelica isn't the only USW member who is a firm believer in preserving Max Ovanka's work. Meredith Stepp works in the USW Education and Membership Development Department. Once Meredith joined the USW family in 2020, she became involved with a Society to Preserve the Millville Murals of Max Ovanka, of which her colleague and now retired steelworker, Steffi Delmike, served as chair. Now, in 2024, Meredith has taken up the torch and leads the board in its efforts to raise awareness and educate the public about the murals. You know, very few people know about Max um, yeah, in our country, much less here in Pittsburgh. Um, and it's, you know, such a, I thought, what a, what a treasure. And of course, the intersectionality with he's depicting uh, labor here in Pittsburgh, literally on the walls. Um, labor uh, workers being sacrificed to industry. Um, I, one of the murals is mothers giving uh, their sons to American industry, and it depicts a uh, a dead miner. And you can see the mills in the background, and it's all supposed to be set in Pittsburgh. Um, so, of course, that, you know, spoke to the work that I do for the labor movement, and as well as my passion for that sort of genre of art. It was a no-brainer for me. I mean, they were in my crawl and I couldn't get them out of my head since I saw them in 2012. Um, and I was, one of the things when I was moving here, I was excited that I would be in such close proximity to them again and to um, have the privilege of knowing Steffi and um, her being confident in my abilities to uh, serve the board in some meaningful way was I wasn't going to miss the opportunity. So uh, I, I jumped on it. To Meredith, one of the most important reasons to preserve these masterpieces is because the themes they express are still relevant today. Her favorite mural in particular probably could have been painted while we were speaking. One of my favorite murals is the they called the Capitalist, and it depicts what you would think very much a robber baron or industrialist at the time would look like. He's got a top hat, he's got a monocle you know, fine, fine outfit on, and he's, he's feasting alone, basically as a banquet, uh, for one at his dining room table. And he's being served by uh, a black butler. And there is another individual who is on their hands and knees with a handout in front of him that he's, um, very 
un- unaware of or indifferent to. Um, and they're also positioned at the same level as a dog under the table, both sort of um, on the same footing and, and, like, trying to just get scraps out of this person. Uh, and he's reading the stocks in one hand and smoking a cigarette with the other and even sort of dismissing this bounty of food in front of him. And in true Vanka style, he's very much about contrasting themes and symmetry. Uh, on the opposing wall right across from it, is the imagery of a family, uh, the immigrant family, of very modest means, all commuting around a table together. And they are literally breaking bread. They're eating bread and soup and not much else. Um, But you see in the background, Christ is imposed, uh, and he seems to be blessing this family um, and this collective, whereas this sort of individualism and very much, it's very clear, greedy, um accumulation of the capitalist uh is you know and and are, are being contrasted and the message is very clear these murals are in essence the epitome of the american story i think the nice thing is to know that you know this isn't a fight we've given up it's one that will continue for a long time and wherever there's injustice there's resistance and i think those are the sort of messages that we get and in that way i think it's very uplifting To learn how you can get involved with the mission to save the Maxovanka murals, including making a donation, visit www.vankamurals.org. That's www.vankamurals.org. Until next time, take care and stay safe, siblings. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1919. That day began the week-long general strike in Seattle, Washington. As World War I drew to a close, many workers in the city were frustrated by two years without pay increases due to the war. 35,000 workers in the shipyards walked off the job. Workers from most of the 110 union locals across the city voted to support the general strike. At 10 a.m. on February 6th, the citywide strike began. As many as 65,000 workers, or a fifth of the entire workforce of the city, walked off the job. They were met by a combined force of the police and the military. It has been nearly a century since the Seattle general strike. This unprecedented stand by the city's workers has been remembered and commemorated in many ways. Perhaps the most innovative memorial came in the form of a rock opera. In 1985, Rob Rosenthal set the story of the strike to music. He based the lyrics on research and interviews he did as a graduate student at UC Santa Barbara over the course of 10 years. 
a band named The Fuse formed to record the 21-song album. The final project was a blend of rock, blues, and folk. The music tells the story of a fictional man who comes to Seattle looking for work in the shipyards during World War I, joining the labor movement and the strike. What labor history event would you like to hear set to music? Without a Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. Well, that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Labor Heritage Power Hour. I'm your host, Chris Garlick. I'd just like to say that I hope you enjoyed today's show. All of us working here are volunteers, and that's fine. But we work really, really hard every week to find and bring you the best labor arts and culture out there. And the way you can show your appreciation is to support our home station, WPFW, Revolutionary Radio, since 1977. Please give generously during our winter pledge drive, WPFWFM.org, or you can call 800-222-9739. And ensure that WPFW will be here to chronicle the revolution and will be here at the Labor Heritage Power Hour keep bringing you labor culture, labor arts. Also, if you've got suggestions for guests or topics for future shows, we would love to hear them. Just drop us a note, info at laborheritage.org. We read everything and we pay attention. Our music today included Plenty Tough and Union Made by the Waco Brothers, Solidarity Forever by Mr. Jacques, and Boss Put That PTO On by Anita Mathias. The Labor Heritage Power Hour is a proud founding member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, laborradionetwork.org. Today's show was produced by me, Chris Garlick, engineered by Mighty Mike Nacella and Kalia Chapman right here on WPFW 89.3 FM, your station for jazz and justice and, of course, revolutionary radio. Thanks so much for listening to the Labor Heritage Power Hour, the art and soul of the American labor movement. We'll see you next week. We're not waiting for judgment day.